This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, a discussion of Judaism and anti-Semitism in Latin America, and updates on the case of the slain Jewish prosecutor in Argentina. But first, Gabriela Conchola is back this week. She has our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Diplomats from Cuba and the United States sat down to discuss human rights this week in Washington, D.C. Another in a series of talks as the countries work to normalize relations. U.S. negotiators stressed the need for more free speech in Cuba and more freedom for dissidents who oppose the Cuban regime. U.S. diplomats want the Cuban government to stop jailing and harassing its critics. Afterward, Cuban diplomat Pedro Luis Pedroso spoke about the mood of the talks. This meeting was held in a professional and respectful atmosphere. During the discussions, the Cuban delegation emphasized the need to have dialogue based on serving equality and non-interference in internal affairs of the parties. Cuba countered the allegations of the United States with its criticism of the human rights record of the U.S. The Cubans stressed the U.S. has a poor record regarding racism towards African Americans and police brutality aimed at the African American community. This week, Argentina marked the 33rd anniversary of its war with the United Kingdom by threatening to prosecute British oil firms. Several firms announced new oil finds in waters of the South Atlantic off the island group the Argentines claim. Argentina says the oil firms must get their permission before exploring the claims. The British and Argentines can't even agree on a name for the islands. The British called them the Falklands and the Argentines called them Las Malvinas. Although the Argentines lost the war for the islands, they have continued to try to gain control by appealing to international bodies, such as the United Nations. Recently, both countries have discussed increasing their military strength in the region. We'll have more on Argentina later on this program. The defense minister of Bolivia learned a hard lesson this week a lesson that involved sensitivity to political messages and picking the right clothing. The item in question in this case, a vest with a popular slogan for Bolivians. The defense minister, Jorge Ledesma, was in Chile leading a delegation that distributed disaster aid, 13 tons of drinking water. Chile is coping with flooding, with scores dead and missing. But while distributing the water, Ledesma wore a vest with a slogan that read, The ocean is Bolivia's. Bolivia lost a war to Chile that concluded in 1884. Chile took Bolivia's Pacific coastline as the spoils of war, and Bolivia has been landlocked ever since. Bolivia's government has pressed the case for the return of the Pacific coast in the past several years. But Bolivia's president agreed that Ledesma's wearing of the vest was especially inappropriate during a disaster aid mission. So the president apologized and fired the defense minister. For Latin Pulse, this is Gabriela Canchola. Thanks, Gabriela. Our shout-out this week goes to our listeners in Santa Monica, California. We had more listeners in Santa Monica than any other spot on the globe last week. So we say thank you very much. And now our attention returns to Argentina and the mysterious case of Special Prosecutor Alberto Nisman. 
Nisman was found dead in his apartment in January, and ever since, Argentina has speculated about the cause, including the president in a national address who accused rogue spies of killing the prosecutor. Nisman was investigating the bombing of a Jewish community center in the mid-1990s. 85 people died in that attack. Nisman had prepared charges accusing President Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner and members of her government with colluding with Iran to cover up Iran's involvement in the terrorist attack. An Argentine appeals court dismissed those charges last week. We asked Shannon O'Neill about the Nisman case. She's with the Council on Foreign Relations. She discussed why this case continues to be important for President Fernandez and Argentina. We reached O'Neill via Skype from her office in New York City. It seems the evidence has been building that this was in fact a murder, not a suicide, though it's still unclear. There's various investigations out there. What we have seen though, so one side is what he was investigating and that does seem, there's a couple of appeals left, but that does seem that she and the foreign minister, Hector Timmerman, were exonerated from responsibility, that the evidence that Nisman had collected just wasn't strong enough to hold up in court. But there then is this question about the murder of Nisman and what had happened to him and, and who was behind that. And there's lots of conspiracy theories out there from uh, the Iranian terrorists to uh, the local intelligence service, Argentine intelligence service, to perhaps someone within the government. Uh, though, on the other side, what the Nisman case has done has not helped her at all in her standing within Argentina, nor her political party and perhaps uh, political heirs um, as Argentina heads into an election, a presidential election that will happen in October. So it's definitely added turmoil to a situation that was already quite tumultuous, given that there's elections coming up, that she cannot run again in these elections. There are a lot of candidates that have thrown their names into the ring. And it's a time on the economic side where Argentina has a lot of issues. It has a debt overhang. It has this issue with uh, creditors around the world where it's unable to pay any of its debt in international markets due to a New York uh, court ruling um, brought by some of what are called the holdouts um, and a time when the economy really is retracting, it's in recession, um, given some of the policies that have developed over the last decade or so. President Fernandez herself has fueled some of these conspiracy theories. She's the one who's put out there that members of the intelligence secretariat, um, former members, uh, may have been behind this particular murder as a way to smear her. Uh, what do you think about some of her allegations, and what do you think is the most believable theory that seems to be out there? I have to say, I think it's very hard to know what happened and who's behind it. And Argentina is known for some of its, its drama and conspiracies over the years, and this will probably add to the list, starting with you know those surrounding Juan and Evita Perón way back in the 1950s. It does seem uh, that obviously it has something to do, or it seems to have something to do with the AMIA case, with the case of a bombing that happened in the 1990s, um, which links to Iranians of a, of a Jewish center in Argentina, and then the many, many years of investigations along the way. So who is it that would benefit from less information coming out about that bombing? It could be any of these characters. But I think what's interesting here is actually just the murkiness of it. Um, that no one seems to have a handle on it, and that much of the system is built in a very opaque way that it's likely that no one will ever really know what happened in this case. But given all of that, it's fed into domestic politics, and particularly domestic politics in a quite pivotal moment when you have 
a definitive change of government coming, uh, whoever the candidate will be, whoever wins the elections and how that comes out, we don't know. And it's very, uh, it's in flux at the moment. But we do see a change coming. So I think it's fed into that overall dynamic happening in Argentina today. You mentioned the AMIA bombing. And some of the handling of that case early on is what brought about this position of special prosecutor to begin with. There have been lots of discussion and analysis of whether the intelligence services in Argentina are involved with the court system and sometimes uh, pulling the strings in ways that would not be what we would see in a good rule of law system. Do you have an uh, opinion or analysis about that? Well, Argentina has a long history of a quite strong military and intelligence service that has been, uh, let us say, autonomous from uh, democratic institutions, um, right? It had a lot of military dictatorships in the past. It had uh, lots of very powerful outside forces and, and real issues over the last, you know, now almost 30 years of of democratization, of sort of reigning in those various powers. And it's done it quite successfully in many ways. But there is an issue, and, and the uh, Christina's government, the Fernandez de Kirchner government, has actually made several reform changes that would strip further their power, and particularly their autonomy from civilian institutions. So whether it's the intelligence services, and that, that's what she has put forward, but there have been some real changes to the way they're structured and the, and the oversight um, that they will have. Whether it's also the way the courts work and sort of changing a bit the reforms that will change the way prosecutors, the way the court systems work in general, there are potentially some disgruntled elements out there that like the status quo where they had a lot more autonomy and, and a bit less transparency than presumably these reforms would introduce. So it's, it's possible that's where that's coming from. But, but again, it's very hard to know. Earlier this year when we did another program on the Nisman case, uh, one of the jokes of our expert at the time was uh, we haven't seen sex or corruption rear their heads in, in, in this particular debate. And within the past few weeks, we've seen the Fernandez government come out and say that Nisman himself was corrupt and that maybe the murder had something to do with corruption and that he had spent money in illegal ways on prostitutes and ghost workers and, and other things. Um, this further clouds this particular debate about what really happened, does it not? Well, there's a lot being thrown out there, um, and, and none of these are, are uh, putting out the salacious details or s allegations of salacious details is always a way to uh, to turn things away. I mean, also happening at the same time, not tied to the Nisman case, are other allegations of corruption that are happening out there. In fact, there was a report that came out that Christina's son, uh, Maximo Kirchner, um, allegedly has private bank accounts um, abroad that are out there with large sums of money and that perhaps uh, the current ambassador, Argentine ambassador of the United States, signed on to those accounts as well. So there's other corruption cases circulating uh, in the whole debt saga that's going on and, and those trying to gain assets back from Argentina and follow, trying to uncover assets. Um, there's been several elements in New Mexico where perhaps there's bank accounts there or going through or shell companies going through there that are tied to the Kirchner. So right now there's a lot of allegations of corruption and perhaps uncoveries happening, not just with the Nisman case, but also with the larger Kirchner government and tied particularly to the president and her family. Wasn't also the vice president implicated in a corruption case? And don't all of these corruption allegations start to accumulate against 
anyone who might be her heir on the Peronist side in Argentina? You know, it is a challenge uh, in that sense, and it shows in many ways the informality of institutions, the sort of the, the weakness of institutions, of the checks and balances of transparency in Argentina today, that a president, a vice president, ministers, family members, that they're at least the allegations of corruption could be so widespread and, and actually so deep. Uh, you know, the question is at this point, actually, in the race, who is her heir? Many people think that within her party, it should be Daniel Scioli, who's the uh, the governor of the province of Buenos Aires. Um, but she's been very reluctant to endorse him. And many would say some of her moves uh, actually show that she really prefers almost anyone else to him. Uh, there's been rumors that her son might jump into the race. Uh, there's rumors that perhaps she would back Sergio Massa, who used to be uh, a close ally of hers, but broke away from her. And, and so perhaps that she would go back to him. There's lots of rumors about where she'll put her weight. And one thing she has not yet done is put her political weight behind anyone. So there's a question about whether that political weight is a poison pill or not um, that you bring up, given the corruption and these other issues. Um, but she has yet really to choose or designate her candidate. Uh, because of the Nisman case, and you have brought up the issue of the international bankruptcy, which still seems unresolved. And we see these headlines that Citigroup is being held hostage in the middle between the New York judge involved in the bankruptcy and the, and the Argentine government. Uh, many people have described the political process right now in Argentina as in meltdown. How would you describe it? Argentina has a long history with Peronism. Uh, and Peronism, the party with, with, from which uh, the current president comes, where Cristina comes from, is one that's built really on a patronage machine. Uh, and so you see that in the various factions, the various groups that are loyal to this movement, the benefits that they get from that. And so while there's lots of problems in Argentina, the monetary expansion, the various very interventionist economic policies of the last several years uh, have started to falter, uh, in part because of the debt bankruptcy and the challenges there, in part because of the end of a commodity super cycle around the world, which is affecting not just Argentina, but Brazil, Peru, other countries, but especially Argentina, given the other ways that the economy has or hasn't been working. All of these things are leading to very difficult economic times, but there still is this political base. There's still a political calculus that I would say influences uh, the president's moves. And so many of the choices she's making are not on an economic basis. They're not about how do I get the economy to grow, particularly since she is not going to be president after December of this year. What haven't we covered in regard to Argentina that you think is important for us to consider? Whoever comes into the Casa Rosada in, in Buenos Aires is going to face a very difficult economic situation. Um, but they're also going to have perhaps more options than she had. They're going to be building a new political coalition uh, they will potentially be received well on the international stage from investors and others that are weary of the policies and interactions of the last 12 years. Um, so I think there will be an amount of goodwill that that candidate um, and then to be president uh, can take advantage of to sort of bring Argentina back to the broader international community and also resolve some of these overhanging economic issues, particularly the debt issues uh, to make it much more profitable and much easier to invest in Argentina and really spur the economy, which will be very beneficial for a broader group, a more inclusive group of Argentines. That concludes this portion of our interview with Shannon O'Neill of the Council on Foreign Relations. She joined us from New York City via Skype. 
We'll hear more from that interview later this spring. Coming up, we'll explore the Jewish experience in Latin America. Stay with us. Democracy is synonymous with independence. Independence is synonymous with emancipation. Emancipation is synonymous with sovereignty. Sovereignty is synonymous with superiority. Superiority is synonymous with arrogance. Arrogance is synonymous with domination. And domination is synonymous with dictatorship. Dictatorship always finds its way. Amnesty International. Learn. Indignate. Act. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. With Passover starting today, Friday, April 3rd, we thought it would be a good time to discuss Judaism in Latin America. Argentina has the largest Jewish population in Latin America, with about a quarter of a million people. And Brazil also ranks in the top 10 nations worldwide with significant Jewish populations. We turn to Marjorie Agosin at Wellesley College in Massachusetts for her expertise. Agosin is the author and editor of many books, including Memory, Oblivion, and Jewish Culture in Latin America. Her latest book is a book of young adult fiction called I Lived on Butterfly Hill. We reached her in Massachusetts via Skype. First, I would like to say that the Jewish presence in Latin America dates from the 15th century, from the arrival of, uh, of, of Christopher Columbus. The presence of Sephardic Jews, Spanish Jews, um, it's, it's a, a very uh, interesting and historically relevant presence. Now, if you look at contemporary Latin America, uh, starting in the 20th century, there's very the 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 Jewish population is is very very small. It's one percent of the entire population of Latin America. For example, where I come from in Chile, there are only twelve thousand uh, Jews registered as Jews and affiliated to to different synagogues and religious schools. So it's a very very small minority. At the same time, if I could just go back on times, during uh, World War II, before World War II, and at the end, uh, many, many Jews fled to Latin America, especially to Argentina. And the Jewish population of Argentina grew quite a bit. I don't know exactly the numbers, but Argentina, because of its location in the Atlantic, the possibility of traveling there, became a very important uh, port of entry together with so many Nazis that were welcomed in Argentina. So you had Jews and former Nazis, in a way, arriving together in, and coexisting. And if you think about the 19th century, a lot of, there were a small Jewish population that emigrated to Argentina, uh, especially to um a place called Moisesville, almost in the Argentine Pampas, because they were escaping the, the pogroms. A lot of them were from the Ukraine, from Crimea. And Baron uh, von Hirsch uh, bought some land and allowed for the Jews to become farmers. And that's, that's kind of the Jews in the 19th century. So basically you have... The arrivals of the Jews with Christopher Columbus, the arrival of the Jews in the 19th century, and contemporary times of the 20th century. And in the 21st century, uh, Jews often live 
Argentina, Chile, Uruguay, and emigrate to Israel. So there are no new arrivals of Jews to Latin America. They are escaping it. I think the current population in Argentina, which would be the largest in Latin America, would be about 250,000 or about a quarter of a million. And many of those are also emigrate to the United States, do they not? Well, it's very difficult to emigrate to the United States and to get visas. And um, all Jews can emigrate freely to Israel from all over the world. But they do emigrate to the U.S., especially uh, the the professional um, Jewish community, the ones that feel they can contribute a lot here in terms of their skill. For example, there's many, many Argentinian physicians who have emigrated from Argentina to the U.S. So is it this long history then that has this sad touch to it? I would guess that some of the early immigration also was a result of the Spanish Inquisition, people trying to come to the New World to escape that. Yes, but the, during the Spanish Inquisition, uh, and you know the Inquisition reached as far as from Mexico to, to Peru, but yes, they came for freedom to the New World, and it could be also linked to U.S. history because many conversos lived in New Mexico that was then Mexico. From your perspective, you teach about Jewish culture and what Jewish culture adds to particular areas. What do you see as the major contributions of Jewish culture to Latin America? I think the major contribution of Jewish culture to Latin America is a contribute. It's very similar to Jewish culture around the world, a contribution in the arts, in literature, in music, in medicine, uh, in architecture, in food. I think that the Jewish communities that arrived to Latin America brought much of their way of life, progressive way of thinking to the countries that, that uh, welcomed them. And uh, there have been, you know, great uh, Jewish writers, uh, Jewish architects, politicians, physicians, and like Jews everywhere, they contribute to the country that receives them. The Jewish people have a history of being expelled from everywhere. It's even very difficult to be a Jew and live in Israel now, and I'm really not afraid to say it, but I don't know where Jews could be uh, allowed to live with relative peace. So I think that when they went to Latin America, they contributed like uh, world citizens to their new nations and to their new homes which I am very grateful for to, to have been allowed to, to go to Chile because if not, my family would have perished in the Holocaust and 90% of them did, but the ones that went to Chile lived. And so then your family decided to emigrate to the United States? Yes, my family. I, I am great-granddaughter, granddaughter, daughter of immigrants. Because my father had a very um, complex situation. He was a professor of medicine at the University of Chile. He supported Salvador Allende, but he also had a U.S. grant from NEH or the Rockefeller Foundation. And my father was attacked by the left and by the right. So we emigrated in early 70s. What do you think about the, the recent issues of how Jews are being treated in Argentina now. Do you still see um, anti-Semitism in Argentina and other parts 
of Latin America? Unfortunately, yes. Uh, I think anti-Semitism is a global phenomenon, a question uh, we should address with tremendous seriousness. And what is very peculiar is that you could have anti-Semitism when there are no Jews. They had a study that you could have anti-Semitism in, in Austria and in Romania, where often the Jewish populations are, are very meager. In Argent Argentina has a history of anti-Semitism since Juan Perón. He even had a saying that said, be a patriot, kill a Jew. And this, um, uh, this anti-Semitic attitude um, has been a constant in the society, and especially now with the murder of, uh, of the prosecutor Nisman, when he really wanted to bring truth and clarity to the bombing of the Israeli embassy and the bombing of the AMIA, the Jewish community center, and he was murdered because um, he knew too much, because he was going to testify he did not commit suicide. I'm pretty sure of that. And you know, when um, there was a terrorist attack against the Jewish community in Argentine soil, there was uh, a conspiracy of, of silence. And the government, by then, I think of, of Menem, who had an alliance with Syria, who had an alliance with Hezbollah, covered everything. So when you cover the truth, and when Jews are killed and there's no accountability, you wonder what kind of a society is Argentina. I am convinced that um, anti-Semitism is the targeting of, of people of, of Jewish uh, descent and uh, you know, there are many skinheads, there are many, there's a, a Nazi party uh, in Argentina, and they persecute uh, Jews. There's no question about it. What are the positive experiences that you see for Jews in Latin America today? I see that in spite of issues like the, what's happening in Argentina today, or the clashes between the Jewish community and the Palestinian community in Chile, which is the largest in the world after the one in the West Bank, I still believe people can live together, talk together, marry each other, even if they're from different religions, different ethnicities. And my own life in Chile as a young girl, was I had a very happy life. I did not suffer the anti-Semitism of my parents. And um, I, I am very grateful to have been grown up as a Jew in Chile. So there are many, there are many positive things about uh, being a Jew in South America. I, I would imagine, because you mentioned how small the community is there, that it is a close-knit community in Chile. Well, it's a close-knit community, but a very divided community. and. Oh, this is a very important point to think about. The Jewish community in Chile, and I have experienced it firsthand, and this is my personal opinion, is divided over the Pinochet Allende years. Some Jews were ardent supporters of Salvador Allende, others fled. But as a Jew, I find it very disturbing that Jewish people who have uh, suffered human rights violations and persecution throughout the centuries would support a dictator. No, nevertheless, the United States also supported him. And I have very mixed feelings about a great democracy like ours supporting the Chilean military coup. 
So uh, it's a close community, it's a divided community, and it's a community which frightens me because they are unable to move forward and unable to reconcile their past. Thank you so much, Professor Marjorie Agosin of Wellesley College. Join us via Skype from Massachusetts today. She's a poet and author, including the book Memory, Oblivion, and Jewish Culture in Latin America. Thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you so much. Agosin's latest book, I Lived on Butterfly Hill, is based on real events from the takeover of Chile by General Augusto Pinochet. Thanks for joining us on this edition of Latin Pulse. If you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. If you're looking for earlier editions of Latin Pulse, we're available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Flipboard. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game, Mini Mundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse for our entire team, production assistant Gabriela Conchola, and producer Jim Singer. I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2015 Las Rocas Productions. <laughs>